0: This is day three of the 2022 Idlewild Bible School. Our first period teacher is brother Jason Hensley. His general subject is Elijah, a man of like passions. Today's topic is the Ravens. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Okay, so uh, I was asked to talk a little bit slower, so I'm gonna try, but if I see any of you asleep, I'm gonna talk fast again, all right? That, (laughs) or I might come, you know, sit next to you, so so we'll we'll see how it goes. Okay, we are going to be talking about the ravens today. So let's just kind of recap what we have gone over so far. We have seen Elijah learning this lesson that God is in control, or at least uh, maybe we haven't seen him learning it yet, but we've seen him needing to learn this lesson. So we have him needing to learn the lesson. And we are now going to see the beginnings of God teaching that to him as he goes and he spends time with the ravens. So here we are in class three. And here are our lessons. We have seen that God is in control. We have seen that God hears prayers. We have seen, or we will see today, that God gives lessons that push us beyond our comfort zones. And I think that's a fairly, we, we understand that. We know that that's how God works. We can't really learn anything unless we are pushed beyond our comfort zones. But I think it's still something that we need to be reminded of consistently because we find ourselves asking, why is this happening? Why does it have to be like this? And the answer is, it's not always the answer, but a lot of times the answer is because We're growing, and this is how we grow. We have to feel uncomfortable. We have to be put in situations that make us go outside of our norm. And so that's what we are going to see here with Elijah. He is going to be put in a situation with the ravens that would have made him feel incredibly uncomfortable. Alright, the plan. You'll notice we have three sections. We will be talking about Elijah at the brook, then his journey to the widow, but we're not going to talk about the widow yet, so you'll have to wait until tomorrow. So we'll be at the brook, his journey to the widow, and then we're going to compare the brook with the time with the widow. We're going to see that in fact God was doing the same thing both times, teaching him the same lesson. So that's the idea. God gives lessons that push us beyond our comfort zones, and the big question is, why ravens? Why is that a significant thing to know? You know couldn't, couldn't scripture have just said birds, right? Why does that make a difference? Why is, it, why is it important that it was ravens and not parakeets, right? I mean, aside from, you know, it would have been cuter if it was parakeets, but, but you know, what? why does it make a difference, Right? but scripture gives us the details and so we're supposed to we're supposed to know that was a rhetorical question Peter (laughs) we could talk after alright so at the at the brook you'll notice that God tells him twice that it was going to be ravens that fed him so there's a significance here ravens ravens so again Elijah is always commanded by God to do essentially everything in his life. And in this command, God gives a few particular details, specifically here that it's going to be ravens. So the question is why? Well, I think first of all, ravens would have presented a problem. The reason being? Is this what you want to say, Peter? There you go. That's right. Ravens are unclean birds, yes. So. Ravens are unclean and this would be an issue. So you, see, you have it up here, Leviticus 11, 13 to 15. You shall detest every raven of any kind. Now, I think that this is helpful because we don't, we don't live under the laws of clean and unclean. At least I assume none of you keep kosher. Maybe you do, but uh, I don't think so. So this, these are laws that we often don't think about. So in order to really get the strength of what God is saying here, I want us to pay attention to this word detest. You shall detest every raven of any kind. The reason that we want to look at that is because the same word shows up later in Leviticus chapter 20. And Now notice what God says, if you don't detest these things that I've told you to detest, look at what would happen. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. Do you see what God is saying? He says these animals are detestable and if you don't detest them, then guess what happens to you? You become detestable, right? It's like the, the detestableness of, I was going to say detestability, but the, anyway, the detestableness of these animals like transfers to you, almost, if you, don't, if you don't recognize that God says, don't be with these animals, don't be with these birds. Now, just to give you a sense of what's meant by detest, right, it, it wasn't just a, oh, I don't like that bird, you know, it's, it's not good, it's unclean, I don't like it. Here's your word, it's shakats in Hebrew. This is the Strong's number, 8262. It only shows up seven times, but it's a very charged word. So it's not just a, I don't kind of like it very much. Look at how God uses the word here in Deuteronomy 7, verse 26. He's talking about idols here. And he says, you will utterly detest and abhor it for it is devoted to destruction." So this is how they were supposed to feel about these unclean animals. That when you see the unclean animal coming, you say, whoa, I'm not getting near that, right? I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to go anywhere close where it might accidentally touch me. Something along those lines. They were to detest, hate it, abhor it, right? And, and you can see with the description of the idols here, God says, burn them up, right? Totally get rid of them. So this was a serious word. Now, do you, uh, are you beginning to sense here the sudden moral dilemma that Elijah would be feeling? So here he is, the word of God comes to him and says, I want you to go to the brook Cherith, right? No issue there. You're gonna have water during the drought. And uh, by the way, ravens will feed you, Elijah. I've told ravens to give you food. And here's Elijah just thinking, "Uh, aren't those the birds I'm supposed to detest? I'm supposed to abhor these things. How, How do I get the food? Right? Are they going to drop it off over there and you know I just hang out over here until the bird flies away and then I go get the food, like how's this totally supposed to work? So you can see that, now what's fascinating about this in addition is I want us to think about the details that Elijah wasn't told. There's a lot of things that God doesn't say. He doesn't say where he's going to sleep, you know if I was Elijah you, you'd kind of care about that right? Was there going to be a nice cave or something where he could spend the night? What was he supposed to do if a wild animal came? Because he's just living in the wilderness at a brook during a drought. If so you would assume, he probably had a number of run-ins with creatures he probably did not want to have run-ins with. What was he supposed to do? God doesn't say anything about that stuff, but he tells him twice, ravens, ravens, Elijah. The problem actually gets worse though, let me ask you this question. Anybody know, uh, I got rid of my transitions here, so now now you know all the secret questions I'm going to ask you, does anybody know what ravens eat? Don't look at the screen. Ravens eat dead stuff, right? Now you get one quick guess, were you allowed to eat dead stuff under the law of Moses? No, right? That was a no no because dead stuff was unclean. So consider this God says ravens are going to give you food, right? And the way that you know that things are unclean within Judaism is a very quick, quick way to know if an animal is kosher or not. And that is if that animal is considered a scavenger. Scavengers are not clean. So a raven is a scavenger. Therefore, imagine this. God says to Elijah, an unclean bird is going to give you your food. Can you imagine Elijah's next question? Well, what kind of food is that going to be, right? Because probably, you know, it's going to be bringing today's roadkill, you know, and when Ahab was driving around or whatever and he runs into something, you know, the the raven flies down and brings it to Elijah, and here's this dead thing. And and here's Elijah just trying to figure out, well, I wonder where this came from. Is this clean or not? I probably can't eat this. So it's a, a fascinating sort of thing that God essentially is giving him like extra uncleanness. And he didn't have a choice. Now, just to bring this home even more for Elijah, in Hebrew, there's two words that just generically mean food. So this typically, this is sort of a funny translation kind of thing. Anybody know how these words would be translated typically in the King James? They're typically translated as meat, but they don't mean meat. They mean food. Oftentimes they actually mean not meat, so like grain. So this is your word ohel and ma'achal. So those typically mean food, now, what's fascinating about this is when God commands Elijah he doesn't use the generic food words. And I think that's because it could have given Elijah the wrong impression uh, oh, you know, this is just kind of an accident that the law is going to be broken. But instead, God specifically uses the word basar, which in Hebrew means, so when God tells Elijah, the ravens are going to bring you bread, and they're going to bring you flesh. Or this is what we're specifically told that he was given, bread and flesh. So when we read this, we have to recognize it's not just that he got food from ravens, but he was specifically being brought dead stuff to eat. Now I don't know if that like blows your mind. I hope it does because essentially what God is showing us is that he put Elijah in a situation where it was unavoidable to break the law. Unless, you know, and and this is what we do as humans, right? We get put in certain situations and we can see, you know, well, there's a commandment I don't think it's going to validate or I don't think it's going to break the principle to break that command, but I don't feel comfortable breaking it anyway. And, and you know, we have these choices and, and we're not sure what to do. And so sometimes we almost double down on the letter of the law. So maybe that's what Elijah did. You know, you, you can almost picture him saying, oh, put that in the pile of dead stuff. You know, and there's just this pile that's growing every day because Elijah won't eat it. Right? He'd, it's almost like... He says no that's breaking the law I'm not going to do it. I don't know. You know maybe he doubled down on on his his feelings of I can't break the law. Maybe. We don't know. But I think this is how we act sometimes. Whatever it was, God was specifically putting him in a situation where it, he almost had to break the law. Now the reason I want to talk about this is because I don't think we often realize how often this is the case that God does this. This is one of my absolute favorite things to look at in Scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just ignore my slides for a little bit now because I want to talk to you about this because it's so exciting. So God consistently throughout the Old Testament forces his people to break the law. And I think that's fascinating. Now, let's just back up a little bit to see it, right? The first commandment in the law of Moses, anybody know what it was? First commandment in the law of Moses. It was the commands of Passover. It's Passover, first commandments, right? Because they haven't gotten the law yet. They're, they're about to leave Egypt. It's Exodus chapter 12. So first commandments, the law of Moses, Exodus chapter 12. So you can, you can verify this if you want. Exodus 11, let's back up one chapter. We are at the final plague, right? So we're at the final plague, Exodus chapter 11. Moses goes in front of Pharaoh, and here's what he says. Tonight at midnight, the firstborn in the land will die. Okay? Tonight at midnight, firstborn in the land will die. Therefore, we're going to have to to figure this out here, see if we can do it. Anybody want to guess what day Of the first month it was. What day of the first month? It's gonna be the 14th. 14th day of the first month, because that was Passover, right? All the firstborn die, 14th of the first month. Okay, now you might be wondering, you know, why is this significant? Okay, well, let's now jump forward to chapter 12. Get this. Chapter 12, God comes to Moses. What day is it? 14th, the first month, right? God comes to Moses, chapter 12. Moses has already said, today, all the firstborn in the land will die at midnight. Okay. God says to Moses, you can check it. First few verses of Exodus 12, he says, I want you to tell the whole congregation to take a lamb, one lamb for each household, and I want you to do it on the, what day of the month? Tenth. Now you're Moses, what do you think you do if you hear this? You think, uh, well, God, that was um, four days ago, how's that supposed to work? And you know what's fascinating is if you keep reading the chapter, you'll notice Moses doesn't say that to the Israelites. He doesn't tell them, go choose a lamb, hold on to it for four days, and on the 14th day, will kill the lamb. He doesn't tell them that. Instead, he says, take a lamb and then kill it. Because Moses realized it was impossible to follow the law. He couldn't. It was supposed to have been followed four days ago. But it wasn't possible. The first command in the law of Moses that God ever gives was impossible to keep. Isn't that fascinating? This is just what God continually does. And you can just picture Moses thinking, uh well, I don't know what to do with this, right? And, and this is how God is consistently working with law. He puts his people into situations where they cannot keep the law because he wants them to realize it's about principle, not about law. The law was the schoolmaster to lead them to Christ. It's about principle, not about law, so the very first commandment, impossible to keep. Now there's more, there's more of these. I'll tell you my favorite one. Okay, so you remember the story when the Ark was taken from the Israelites, right? Hophni and Phinehas take the Ark, they go into battle, they're killed, the Ark gets stolen by the Philistines, right? You go through this whole funny story, we're not going to talk about it a lot. But, oh man, it's like one of the best stories, right? It's, it's 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. The ark gets taken by the Philistines. They put it in the house of Dagon. You remember what happens to Dagon? Yeah, he falls over, his hands chopped off, his head chopped off, right? And, and the Philistines, ah, oh no, you know, they put him back up. They stick everything back on. The next day, the next day they come, Dagon's fallen over in front of the ark again. So anyway, this all goes on, right? The Ark gets brought back eventually to Israel, the Ark is eventually brought back, and it gets put into Kirjath-Jerim, Kirjath-Jerim, and it stays in a man's house for over 40 years. We know that because we're specifically told, 1 Chronicles 13, the Ark sat there, during the entire reign of Saul. Nobody did anything with it. Saul reigns for 40 years, ark sits there. Now, you might just be thinking, okay, no big deal. The ark was just in Kir in 40 years, whatever. Well, it was a big deal because every year, the high priest goes into the holy place He takes his censer with him, right? He lights incense, the incense fills the room and it fills up the most holy place. High priest then opens the veil to go into the most holy place and what does he see? Nothing. Nothing's there. Now, that was the absolute most important day on the Hebrew calendar. It was the Day of Atonement, and the whole point of the Day of Atonement was to what? Forgive the people. They were supposed to get forgiven on the Day of Atonement. So can you imagine? Here's the high priest walking to where the ark's supposed to be, and he's supposed to pray in front of the ark. He opens up the veil. There's no ark. What do you feel like if you're the high priest? You feel like, well, this was kind of a waste of time, and then you think, well... Here's another here where we're not forgiven. That's awesome. You know right? Like like what am I supposed to do? You close up the veil and you walk away and this was 40 years where the Israelites could not be forgiven through their law. And so you get David coming along and realizing it's not about law that God is constantly saying that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to teach you principle. So you remember in uh, David's psalm that he writes after his sin with Bathsheba? Psalm 51, right? Right at the end, he says, you do not desire sacrifices. You remember that? Or else I would give them, he says. You don't want sacrifices or else I would give them. Instead, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Now we like to quote those verses to say it wasn't about the offerings. And I think that's good but let's think about the context just a little bit. Here's David where for a big chunk of his life there was no ark, there was no forgiveness and he's thinking, thinking, thinking about all of this and then God Helps him to realize that he has just committed adultery and murder. Now, under the law, what? uh, How do you get forgiven for adultery and murder? You don't, right? You just die. (laughs) I mean, that was the situation. You 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 just get stoned. The end. You know, or maybe you get stoned twice because that's you know adultery and murder. So. it was bad right and so David realizes I can't give you anything there's no sacrifice I can offer so it's not just that he's saying God didn't want sacrifices David is realizing for me personally I am dead according to the law there is nothing that I can do and this is what God is constantly doing and we're going to see this very powerfully in the life of Elijah that God says Elijah You want food? You're going to have to eat it from an unclean bird. And you know what? That food is actually probably unclean too. What are you going to do about that? This is Elijah being pushed beyond his comfort zone. Okay. Food from an unclean animal and food that was dead on its own. Deuteronomy 14.21. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. Uh, if you want those two references as well, by the way, Ezekiel 4.14 and Acts 10.14. Those are two places in which faithful people, Ezekiel and Peter, are both saying, I have never eaten anything in my life that is unclean. Right? So you can see now, that was what was typical. Okay. So This is what God is doing for Elijah. I think he's reminding Elijah, you know, this is the the constant message, that God is in control. And I I think what's incredibly powerful about this is, and I I don't mean this to be belittling in any kind of way, but I think that this is actually a helpful thing for us to recognize. Do you notice where God puts Elijah? He puts him in a place that is miles away from any other human. So Elijah has just said, you know, essentially, don't worry God, I got this, I'm going to call down a drought, I'll convert the people, I'll take care of your plan, I got it all. And God says, okay Elijah, I actually have a plan. You go and you live out by yourself for years. Now, can you imagine how that would feel? Right? You, you think you're taking care of this whole thing and God says, okay, yeah, you go take care of it by yourself and the only thing you can talk to are unclean birds. And that's what Elijah has to do. He just goes and he sits there. What's he going to do at the brook for years and years and years? God puts him in a place where he has to realize, oh, God's plan doesn't depend on me. Now have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, oh man, you know, I have this, this set of decisions in front of me, and if I don't make the right decision, God isn't going to be able to fulfill his plan. Or if I don't make the right decision, you know, somebody who needs help won't get helped. Or that if I don't say the right thing when I'm preaching to this person, well, maybe they're going to turn away. Or if I don't reach out to this person right now. And this, this is the Elijah way of thinking, right? I got to call down the drought right now because if I don't do it now, things aren't going to work out. God's whole plan will fall apart. Sorry, I got excited and I talked a little fast. But this is, a, this is what... We're being told here that this is the way that Elijah was thinking and we so often think like this. I remember before having two decisions in front of me and feeling like I didn't know which one was going to glorify God the most so I said I'd pray and flip a coin. Maybe you've done that before. But I think what God actually wants us to realize is He can actually work with both. It's not a question of which one's better, and if I don't do the right one, things will fall apart. It's God saying, actually, you have to realize you're less important than you think you are. And I can actually take care of this without you. The key thing that should amaze us is that God actually wants to use us not that he has to, but that he wants to. And so when we find ourselves thinking, if I don't do the right thing here, if I don't make the exact right choice, it's not going to work, I think we've forgotten that yes, we plant and we water, but God gives the increase. And oh man, I mean, can you feel the sense of relief in that? I, I think there's a, a major relief acknowledging God has his plan. God knows what he's doing. And so sometimes, I think God will take us, and like Elijah, he'll just put us in the desert and say, you know, you've got you to understand this. I'm going to work out my plan. Do you want to be a part of it? Because I'd like you to be. So, God is teaching Elijah... With the ravens, not only are they an unclean bird, but there's one other passage at the time that existed that mentioned ravens. It's in the book of Job. Consider what it says. Job 38:41 says, Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wanders about for lack of food? Where was that food coming from that the ravens had? And that's what God is showing. Elijah, I've got this. I'm taking care of you. There's a drought that you caused, but you'll have water, you'll have food, because I take care of the ravens. So as Elijah waits, the brook gets smaller and smaller. And you can just imagine again, here's somebody who likes to be doing things. He calls down a drought because he feels like things should be done, and he's sitting in a place where he can do nothing. So there he is. We don't know how long he was there. Maybe a year. I mean, the drought lasted for three and a half, right? The only two things he does is he's at the brook, and he goes to the widow's house. So somehow, you know, you've got to divide those two up amongst the three and a half years. So he could have been here for years, right, sitting there by himself, talking to birds. Okay. Then, the very next thing that happens is the word of God comes to him, and he's told this. Now, you wonder, and we're not told, you wonder how would it have affected Elijah to be fed by those unclean birds? Would he have softened a little bit? Would he have realized, you know, it's not necessarily about law? Well, God's going to push him a little further. He says, arise, go to Zarephath, and I love this part, which belongs to Sidon. Just to make sure, you know, in case Elijah didn't know that part. So God says, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Now he could have said, go to Zarephath, but he specifically tells him, oh, by the way, Zidon, or Zarephath is in Zidon. Now why would that have mattered? Why would anybody care that Zarephath was in Sidon? It was a hostile place, and that was where Jezebel was from. So Jezebel was the one who brought in the worship of Baal, right? So now God is saying, okay, you've been here at this brook for years. Now I have a new thing for you to do. I want you to go hang out with Jezebel's friends, right? And you could just imagine Elijah being like, uh, are you talking about the Zarephath that's, you know, in Sidon? And God's like, yeah, Zarephath, which is in Sidon. That one. Right, go go to that Zarephath. I don't want you to get confused. Go to the bad one, Elijah. (laughs) So here's Elijah just thinking, you know, really? Is this seriously what I'm supposed to do? It's a 60-mile journey from Cherith to Sidon so he would have had a long time to think about this and I think it's helpful to just consider what he would have seen. Now we know that the drought was happening not just in Israel but also in Sidon because the widow said she had no food so can you imagine what it would have been like as Elijah, he had been sheltered from all of this, right? He had been at a brook, talking to nobody but birds. I know, I'm really into this like talking to birds thing. He he was at a brook, talking to nobody but birds, he gets up and he leaves, and can you imagine what the shock would be like as he begins to walk through and sees the devastation that happened because of him can you imagine that as he's walking down and he sees an, um, an empty house another empty house another one skeletons right i mean this is this is what it would look like this is a famine and then he gets to another country and he sees the same thing there Now, that would have been kind of a weird experience, I think, because uh, as he goes to this woman, it's fascinating to realize what God is doing. I want to ask you a question here Godliness is not measured by converts. That wasn't a question. Godliness is not measured by converts, okay? right? We know that. It's not measured by how many baptisms, you know, we bring about or anything like that. It's God's the one who is in control. But I do think it's helpful to ask this question at this point. Who, throughout Elijah's life, learned the gospel because of him? Any thoughts? Who learned the gospel because of Elijah? It's a really fascinating answer, I think. It was this woman and her son, and that's it. There were absolutely, as far as we know, there were absolutely no conversions in the entire lifetime of Elijah, except for two Gentiles. I actually find that kind of awesome, because you can see this overriding theme Elijah's big goal was, I'm going to convert the king, I'm gonna convert the entire nation, and God says, no, Elijah, I'll do that. Actually, I'm gonna use you to convert somebody you never would have talked to before. I'm gonna put you in a situation that makes you incredibly uncomfortable, and I'm gonna use you there. Elijah was a big man with big dreams, big goals, and God says, I want you to be content to fill a little space, so he takes him to Zarephath, and he has to learn God was working with the unclean birds, just like God is working with these people. Now, this is very interesting because I don't think Elijah would have had a schema for this, Again, we, we just read this story and we think, oh yeah, he was sent to Zidon, eh, that probably would have bothered him. But I don't think we think about what a moral dilemma the whole thing would have caused. Because, what did the law say about Gentiles? What kind of uh, interaction were you, as a Jew, supposed to have with Gentiles? There were a couple of choices here. Stay separate, so that's one choice, right? Stay separate, which a lot of times meant you go in and you kill them. Okay, so that was one option with Gentiles, Peter. So you wouldn't have a meal with them, that's for sure. Yep, so you wouldn't do that. And Elijah's been told to go live in her house, right? Have a lot of meals. Yeah, you wouldn't marry them. What about if a Gentile wanted to know about God? What would you do? You'd go through a whole conversion process, and they would become Jewish, right? So the law is pretty clear about that. So check it out. Exodus 12, verse 49 says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, those who are Gentiles who want to know more about God, they have to follow the law. Leviticus 16:29 says the same thing. It will be a statute, this is about the Day of Atonement. It shall be a statute to you forever in that seventh month. On the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. So over and over and over, God says, if there is a Gentile who wants to know about me, that's fine. But they have to follow the law. So these are the choices. You stay separate from the Gentiles, which a lot of times meant you go in and you completely obliterate them. Or, if there's ones who want to know about God, you're looking at a Rahab or a Ruth, right? A complete proselytization. Yeah, there you go. Conversion. Complete conversion. So that was the idea. Now let me ask you this. What did the law say about when you went to live with Gentiles? Nothing. Now, you're Elijah. The law is very important to you. You've called down a drought because that is what the law said should happen, right? Here you are for the last year, two years, whatever it is. You've been eating food from unclean birds, food which itself was probably unclean. Or, I don't know, maybe you haven't touched that. I don't know. And now God says, "Okay, now you can't avoid it. Go live with this Gentile woman. And by the way, there's no provision for that in the law. There's nothing the law will tell you to do there. So here's what's fascinating. If Elijah decided, you know what, I want to go and see Let's see what does Scripture, what kind of advice does Scripture give about this? Consider the possible examples. So, possible examples. Who else lived under the law, or who else under the law lived outside of the land? Well, David did. Now, let's think about David's experience outside of the land of Israel. What do you think? Good, bad? yeah pretty bad right like this is how he describes it first Samuel 26 you see the end there David says it was like I was being forced to go serve other gods right what do you do with that if you're Elijah <laughs> here you are thinking uh, that that doesn't sound too good right that's that's not real awesome okay so you probably wouldn't have wanted to look to David well if you ask okay what about before the law there were a handful of people Joseph or Moses? Now, let me ask you about Joseph. What was Joseph's uh, relationship with Egypt? Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like an interesting 50-50, kind of like hybrid thing, right? We, we often call him Joseph, but most people probably would have called him, do you know his Egyptian name? zaphnath paaneah right? So. Anyway, you know, if you ever go on Jeopardy or something, you might need to know that. So, so that, was, that was Joseph's Egyptian name, and that was probably what most people knew him as. He had an Egyptian wife, he had an Egyptian family, right? And his wife was an Egy- the daughter of an Egyptian priest. So, you can imagine Elijah being like, yeah, okay, not going to think about Joseph either. <laughs> right? Like, he's, he wasn't, you know, hard line enough. So, who else to think about? Well... Uh, I think he probably found some kind of solace in Moses, right? So let's think about, let's just try and think like Elijah here. If you were Elijah, you could probably find a few similarities. You could try and come up with these, and I don't, I'm going to say right off the bat, I don't think these were real legit. I don't think these are real good, but I'm trying to, trying to like put myself in Elijah's boots. So the, the idea here is this is perhaps how Elijah could have thought. Elijah brought the drought to save his people, but was resented for it. Moses tried to save his people, but was also resented for it. Maybe a parallel. Elijah was just obeying God's commands, as he felt. So was Moses. He knew he was the deliverer. So Elijah had to flee to a foreign nation to hide from the king, and so did Moses. And you can see him kind of uh, almost feeling like, you know, Moses was a martyr, and I am too kind of thing. Okay, and in that foreign nation, he meets a woman and is sustained, just like Moses meets Zipporah and is sustained. Now, were these parallels really valid? Eh, you know, if, somebody, if I heard somebody giving a Bible class saying these are, these are like good parallels, I'd probably be like, eh, not so much. So maybe this was how Elijah was thinking, but were they legitimate biblically? I don't think so. Because biblically, I think this is what we're being told. Elijah was not actually being paralleled with Moses. I think he was being paralleled with the Israelites. Think about this. God says, I'll give you bread and meat. Does that remind you of anyone? Bread and meat. And not only that, I'll give you water. Right? And eventually, that bread meat and water will run dry and so you'll have to go to a foreign nation to get it. Do you remember that in the Exodus? That the Israelites had to go to the foreign nations and say, can we purchase bread from you? It's a very similar kind of situation. In fact, let's just take a look. Exodus 16.8, you get meat, bread in the evening in the morning, same times by the way as when Elijah was given it. Psalm 78, 20, you have the water gushing out. Eventually, God stops providing. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, they get sustained by foreign nations, just like Elijah with the widow at Zarephath, sustained by a foreign nation. And here's what I think is fascinating about this. Elijah's story wasn't the story of Moses, like he wanted it to be. It was a lot less Glorious than that. It was the story of the people who didn't get it, who complained, and who consistently said, God, you've led us out into the wilderness to die, without recognizing that God was pushing them to the next step of belief, to the next step of belief. He was making them uncomfortable to teach them, and that's what he's doing with Elijah. And so in fact, as Elijah goes to this widow at Zarephath, I want to show you one final slide here. As he goes to this widow at Zarephath. Oh, you know what? I'll show you this too, just because it's a fun picture. Okay, that's not actually relevant. The idea is, you know, it's two like flamingos, because the stories are the same. Two anyway, okay. So the situations are similar. So let me let me show you, right? You got ravens, an unclean bird. Like the widow, who's an unclean bale worshiper. Ravens are scavengers, and it just so happens that the widow is gathering sticks, scavenging when he finds her. And eating its food is against the law, with the ravens, and eating the widow's food would have been against the law. Same kind of thing. And in fact, if, we don't, if you don't feel like the parallel is strong enough, it's interesting that God even quotes himself in 1 Kings 17. Exact same words in the Hebrew. He says there about the brook in verse 4, you will drink from the brook as I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And he says in 1 Kings 17, 9, rise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Same words. And so God is taking Elijah and saying, Elijah, did you learn the lesson with the ravens? Because now I'm going to put you in the same situation But there's no escape from this one. And you know what we're gonna see? And I think this is awesome. The big lesson that Elijah has to learn is compassion, compassion, compassion. And God begins to teach it to him with the birds. And yet when Elijah sees the suffering that his drought has brought about, and when he sees the suffering of this woman, you actually can tell Elijah begins to be moved And as we'll see in the next class, he actually purposefully, knowingly breaks the law for the sake of that woman. And it's at that point that the widow woman turns around and begins to worship God.